like, f- f- you mean, yeah, you mean like the Holy Modal's first two records. Or, yeah, that and Floppy-Eared Mule. And, and so you were a fan of those records? How did you come uh, to know those records? Um, well, well it was a very, that? no, but it was before that. Okay, so you're a kid, I'm in high school in New York, and my mom gave me like the first Bob Dylan record when it came out. Mm. And so then from there, of course, you start looking and you, you want to check out the, and then my dad was really into, uh, God, he was into Judy Collins. What was that other one he was into? I can't remember her name. Well, you know, it was Joan Baez. It was the folk, you know, it was the button. You know, it was like the yeah, all those Kingston Trio and uh, all that. I can't remember all the names. The Chad Mitchell Trio. Yeah, that kind of shit was around. So then, so what? What happens is, so Holy Roll Rounders come out and they're on Prestige, which had some crazy stuff. And so you started noticing, ooh, Prestige, oh ESP, and then of course, then you discover the fucks. And then you see the lineage with that. So, you know, all of that. And then, so if you're in ninth grade, what the fuck? So what were you trying? To, so then so then you got to know Stamfel and then right. you were in New York where I guess at this point the Fugs and Stamfel have a lot of significance to people. Well, no, I think they were already sort of washed up because the hippies at that they point. They had significance. Well, New York, New York shunned its hippies for about 10 years there. From like the mid seventies to were the mid eighties, was that the concept? Yeah, and that would be. They were like, "Oh, that's old," and we only New York only likes the new thing, and so it became more like the Warhol, the Warhol thing turned uptown. Even what I does remember, that involve? Velvet Underground. Well, yeah, I remember. I remember seventy two between seventy two and seventy three. I think it was or seventy one and seventy two. Maybe, maybe seventy one, seventy two. Went there and played some with Peter. And met him, hadn't seen him for a while since we were in L.A. And they played St. Mark's Church, and it was like Holy Modal Rounders and Ultraviolet on a New Year's Eve. And there was, you know, 75, 100 people in that church there. But that's where Andy Warhol was on a New Year's Eve in 1971. It wasn't, he hadn't, like, popped out there yet, out of that his scene and into the next world. And uh, so Peter's thing... I mean, it just kind of fits in because Peter's, it was always about, yeah, Doris Day was cool. Uh-huh. And a lot of people would be, ah, I wouldn't listen to Doris Day. I only listen to, you know, the Sex Pistols. Or I, I'm, I'm part of this club. And Peter was not part of any club. Right. And he was just uh, <laughs> the omnivorous thing again. He wanted to try everything. And Peter was very... Uh, what, 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 where was he coming from that that was his idea and why was his viewpoint different from others? Speed. And how did you relate to that? So <laughs> he loosened up. So your, your idea is that, is that, that <laughs> what's, what loosened him up was speed. I think so. I think he already was a really brilliant guy. And then I think the speed really like, you know, his, his nickname was Wild Blue Yonder. <laughs> and he was... <laughs> I mean, Peter... Uh, mm-hmm. Peter was definitely coming up with stuff, and Peter and Antonia, maybe it's one of the best. I mean, I if I had to say who I like better, like Lennon and McCartney or Peter Antonia, definitely on the Peter and Antonia side. <laughs> you know, not yeah. that you have to compare things, but Peter and Antonia, some of those songs, Laura the Horse, man, that's one of the weirdest songs ever, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, just a lot, of, they just wrote tons of great songs. Yeah, so, them, so, and so you, you, Clearly, you made a selection for that because you thought it was important that way in terms of its universal, in terms of his universal viewpoint. Well, or? you know, no, I mean, I was just like fucking around trying to, you know, 
playing, trying to figure out what to do. And I had come out of Indiana, and I had a, a career there. I had a life there. And I a career could, in? In Bloomington. I could doing? Just, just playing and playing, you know, playing play music and playing. And then they're coming to New York, and it's just like so hard to get any place to play. And it was all about fashion. And I finally had to come to terms that rock and roll was, you know, over 50% fashion and that your playing didn't really matter and blah, blah. And I was like, okay, I have to deal with that. So Peter was just kind of in his own special part of the forest there. So we, you know, and uh, and then I, you know, I sort of over the years, I just kept doing stuff with him. Although the band was shortly, the band basically broke up when Peter was so cranked up. He started using a bourbon glass as a cowbell and he shattered glass into my face, into the eyes of the drummer, which brought the this song to a screeching halt as the drummer This went, was live. Yeah. <laughs> as the drummer went crying into the bathroom, pulling shards of glass out of his eyelids. And uh, that was the end. And plus Peter had decided, unbeknownst to the rest of us, he named the band Caca Caliente. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we were like, hey, and we're looking at the voice. Yeah, we're playing... Hey, so what, Peter, it says Caca Cat. We're not playing. It says Caca Caliente is playing. Isn't what it? kind of other acts are going on at the same time as this? This is... In New York. You know, uh, Tom Verlaine and Richard Hell and, okay. you know, the all those different early Seabees bands and that, that world, you know? So it's early 70s, like, you know, yeah. mid-70s. Yeah, mid-70s things. thing, yeah. Again, and at what point did you so and so this was what you were working was there other people that you were working with there well in New York was a, it was a hard thing to crack and eventually I came around I started working with Glenn Branca so working with his band and I started working with this other guy Dick Connett and um, what were their ideas about what was that about well, Dick is still Dick has that band Last Forever that was on Nunsuch, and he and he just did the last Loud and Wainwright record. He he's he's still like he's not a, you know a schmuck like us running around huh. making. He works. Uh, he did that Jeff Moldauer record of, about the Bix Beiderbecke tribute record a few years. So Dick tends to he did the Charlie Poole record with Loud. So Dick has always been a really good. He went to Harvard. He's a good composer. He we did a lot of dance. I was actually when I think about it, I was doing a lot of writing for dance companies. That mm -hmm. was, you know, which was something to do. How did that come? I mean, how, how there was a lot of dance companies. In a lot of music. dance stuff, yeah. Well, and, and what kind of shows were they doing? What were the presentations? Oh, we do like if we were. I mean, the best thing we ever did. Like we do a ten day run at Dance Theater Workshop, and that, and then we get that? NAA grants. That was on like Nineteenth Street. Yeah, so it was all grant money and. What kind of, how was the NA giving out money for that at that point? What was that about? Oh, you might get, you know, three grand to do the whole piece. Uh -huh. <laughs> and that was, would that work yeah. out? I mean, what did three grand, who did three grand pay? Yeah, shows? well, the dancers would be on, if you, if really like Melissa Fenley and a few of the people had their companies going, so they'd work, they'd do 40 weeks a year on minimal salary and then they'd, do the rest of it was uh, unemployment because they actually put them on salary even if it was next to oh, interesting. so the company could stay together all year but and they'd be yeah. on unemployment they'd collect, Unemplo that collect unemployment and rehearse and not do any shows during the time that you know so it was a lot of scamming going That's on good. to keep going what kind of music would you write for these dancers what was the uh name? well a lot of the stuff was like this sort of mechanized drum machine and bass farfisa <laughs> Yeah, it's, what was a drum machine back then? What, what, I had the same one I got now, the Korg. 
I got this Korg drum machine and it was awesome. The same one that's on If You Want Me to Stay. And oh, yeah. It's yeah. like, this is great. I've I just been buying them up on eBay now, just trying to find more of them because they, they have such a character. And then you, nowadays, you sample them into the Pro Tools and mix them with other stuff. And In those days, was it a very specialized uh, kind of gear? Or were, were a lot well, of hardly people? anybody. Well, we were doing it suicide. Had, you know, uh, Marty Rev had his drum machine thing, but... And then Boris Police Band had a drum machine going. Sometimes Waller Stedding would play with the drum machine, but you know it was kind of we. I don't know how we ended up with the fucking drum machine. I think it was it was me. I think sick of carrying drums around. How were sick of being around reacting drums. to all this? Good, it's good. I love it. Yeah, in New York. In New York, yeah, to a certain extent. Mostly out of New York, more because if you were in New York and you got like press in New York, and then you went to play in Ohio, then they would all those kids would show up and. Dig it. <laughs> what were the ideas that the dancers thought they were putting over? I mean, oh yeah, as far as the dance company stuff. Yeah. Well, it was we did like this guy Charlie Moulton. That was the bulk of the work that I did was with him, and he was in Mercer's band. I mean, dance company, and he spun this off on his own. So it was a lot of sort of post uh, Merce and Cage kind of things. But we didn't. We we did the opposite of what. Um, uh, Cage and what was the other guy with Cage? David, somebody. Um, they like they they like to do shit where the audience would find no immediate connection between the movement and the sound or mm-hmm. the visuals. I, I see. David Tudor, that was the answer. So they were looking. So for they were like doing this thing things. that was really and and that goes all the way back to the Black Mountain to the happenings to all that shit. And so they were, had this really thing of they were going, they changed the way they did work and they changed the landscape, those, you know, that generation of Cage and Tudor and Merce and those, and Lamont Young and, and uh, Pauline Oliveris and that whole, and then they couldn't go back. Whereas we were pop music kids and we could just go and, you know, and play, you know, like whatever one week and then do out stuff. We could use their language, but they couldn't use ours because they were, too they, old and couldn't go back, and then they'd they'd be looked at as frauds if they went and did the kind of shit we did. Only we were could do anything because we were like twenty eight or thirty, not you know fifty five and well known like mm-hmm. those guys were. But so, Molten, we did a lot of sports games that we would have uh, like there was nine people in the the biggest one was this called nine person uh, precision ball passing. Mm-hmm. So the music would be doo 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 boo boo. And these people were passing ball, you know, spalding balls around. And it, so it looks and, like seven four to me. And it looks like, but it looked like Esther Williams. It looked like synchronized swimming. So this would, you know, in the middle of all this crazy esoteric art bullshit. So we come out with fucking synchronized swimming, you know. So you can, can ask imagine how this is like. <laughs> Let me ask a question. What's the relationship since you say crazy esoteric art bullshit? Explain <laughs> the world in which you would come from Zanakis. Right. Is what's the difference between that as crazy art bullshit and the dancers as crazy art bullshit? Well, Zanakis was very, very precise about what he did because he ran his programs on everything. Mm. So his idea was you take like theory, kinetic theory of gases, and then you'd run a math program on it, and then you'd run that over onto staff paper, and then you'd see how that came out, and then you'd use your taste to make it 
beautiful to you. So you were still trying to... Right. And so it's, in one way, it's very organized. Very organized in a weird way. And so his idea was I, he didn't want to use the sentimental structures of, you know, post-Wagner. He wanted the sound masses, but he didn't want the sentiment. So how do you get rid of the sentiment? Well, make it impossible, you know? So all you got are density, intensity, and the moving sound masses. Within that... There are obviously things that sound better to your ear than other things. And, you know, when we're able to follow forms, you know, we have the ability to follow things and make, you know, meaning out of fucking anything. But so given really good clues like what Zanakis does, it's easy, you know. And in a sense, it's, Zanakis is no more difficult than Anne Murray. I mean, when you think about it, if, yeah. you, if your brain is wired that way. And so the, da- <laughs> the dancers now, when the dancers were doing this stuff, did, did they, they must, they didn't have an idea as advanced as getting rid of sentiment or something like that. No, the, the dancers were more, it was, a lot of it had to do with physicality. They did a lot of lifting, they did a lot of pushing, they did a lot of shoving, and they had to have chops. But there wasn't a lot of frou frou kind of shit going on, you know. Uh, there, there. This was like the the end, the, the the opposite end of Swan Lake, you know. This was not, uh-huh. you know, and you know. So the idea then it would be like always like, and then that's where the marketing comes in. You got like, okay, you got to think of this great idea to have a season, mm-hmm. and then. What's it going to do? And, you know, when Melissa Fenley had, you know, 90 dancers with electric guitars and Reese Chatham did the, you know, that kind of shit, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay. Okay. So, yeah. so then at what point did you get sick of all this in New York? In well, after I got sick of, like, like being broke and New York is such an abusive environment. Yeah. No matter how wonderful it is, I love being able to go around the corner to the St. Mark's Theater and I love... The dollar movies and I love the great food and I love you know but you know you want to see one of your friends it's like uh, three weeks from Tuesday at from four to six you know it's just like so there was no and even though everyone and there was a lot when early 70s was really cool in New York because it had a lot of uh, dance parties and it was very open and then as it got more and more I don't know what happened it got codified and then it was just wasn't a lot of fun so I got out of New York before it even got way weird you know there explains back there codification when you're talking about what got codified. What what got codified? Well, just just that what okay, it became defined as to what something was. It was no longer in the process of happening. As soon as the as soon and as this the journalist the social dynamic social dynamic that created like the CBGB scene. Okay. If if they would have started writing about it from day one instead of two years into it when it was already something imagine say say take like imagine if nine months ago every week um keith spiro wrote about the always right you know i mean because i mean you could actually say now that the always is kind of like the cbgb so you know and, yeah yeah, yeah. Was same, you know <laughs> And the hi ho is more like Great Gildersleeves, you know, <laughs> or down the street that the Long Island kids go there. Oh, it's you know, too it's fancy. Like, right? Yeah, yeah. It's Siberia, or whatever. Yeah. That yeah, is. The Siberia <laughs> is like now. So I mean, I can these parallels. But yeah, once and and once journalists and that scene became powerful, and then everyone would be sucking up to them, and then they became like, and then those guys would then go on to become A and R guys oh, after yeah. they worked at the Voice for two years, and then they then they get the big job and the. 
tons of blow in the. So you were mostly <laughs> so, we, so again in L.A. You were mostly doing recording. When you got to New York, you're really no in L.A. For L.A. I was a songwriter. My job really they gave me, but I never wrote any songs. I actually actually had a record deal. I, I had a record deal on Warner Brothers because really? Electra didn't want to. Uh, didn't want Jack Holzman didn't like me because I was an Aquarius. You know, I mean, is that work? Is that work out? I mean, did the work of, of the songwriting Mark Bingham from L.A. Is that like something that? I'll see. I got I got one single here. Oh really? 